Welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host, Carl Zha. Today, I'm very excited to welcome back uh, a returning guest, a Taiwanese communist rapper, Comrade Xiangyu. Or how do you want to be addressed, uh, Mr. Xiangyu? You can call me Xiangyu. Yeah, it's cool. Okay. Well, welcome back. Glad to be back. Uh, for some of you who are longtime listeners, you are already familiar with him. We last time we uh, I brought you to the show, we talk about uh, mostly your family history, uh, you know, your background growing up, how you became a communist, and your very interesting family history uh, tying back to the Korean War. So a lot of I got a lot of response uh, feedback. Uh, many people say they actually learn a lot just from us talking about, you know, the, the recent Asian history. And I thought, well, with your background as Taiwanese, we should start a show talking about Taiwan's political history. Because there's so much misconception floating around um, and so many myths. I'm pretty sure you want to dispel them as well. Uh, yeah, and I understand there are a lot of different views regarding things like, um, you know, reunification or um, independence. But my goal is to at least give people the context so then they can better understand, like, everyone's views, regardless of whether they're correct or not, you know. Well, you know, the beauty of uh, American politics and Internet is that, you know, people can spew off giving very strong opinionated views without knowing anything so it's our goal today hopefully to educate um and and uh, just bring some historical context uh to taiwan because for most people the only if the only only news they have is from western mainstream media all they know is about oh the the taiwan uh, Chinese mainland tensions. Uh, we're gonna bring all the way back well, from the beginning of the time, from the, the, the prehistorical Taiwan down to the present. I think that will really flesh out the political development of the island. Um, should we begin? Yeah, and I think we're gonna also, as we bring up certain historical events, we might do a little bit of film suggestions just as you said um yesterday when we were talking you know humans are visual animals so it'll help people better put things into context i feel yes yes definitely definitely so let's talk about um the early taiwan history now would you like to start or would you like me to start you off um Gee, I don't. I really don't know how to start this one. Let me start off. Okay, so, uh, you know, like there's actually so little, you know, people know about the the, the prehistorical Taiwan. I, I feel like we really need to uh, uh, do its justice on my show. Um, so Taiwan existed, you know, way way before the mainland Taiwan divide, obviously, mm-hmm. and it has long been settled. Uh, by humans since prehistorical times. In fact, uh, one of the, uh, you know, based on, ling- based on linguistic evidence, uh, you know, people believe the Austronesian expansion started out from Taiwan. And by Austronesian, I mean the language fa- family of Austronesian language family, which covers 
from um, Taiwan all the way down to Madagascar on the African coast, uh, down to New Zealand and Hawaii. Uh, these are like the the four. I mean, the the, the Madagascar, New Zealand, and Hawaii are kind of like the furthest Australasian expansions. And what the lang linguists discover is that you know, like pollination language, actually, you know, pretty. Uh, it's pretty uniform. I, I mean, it's, it's the way the language developed is that you know, given enough time different dialects start to appear. Then, then language start to diverge as, you know, isolation builds in and then different languages branches out, right? What, uh, but what they, what did they discover while the Australian expansion that seems to be quite recent brought a whole, uh, you know, range of people and culture spread throughout Pacific and Indian Ocean. Uh, they found the most diverse uh, Australian language group is actually on the island of Taiwan. So the the model of uh, of dispersion is you know the the, the, the di most diverse place is probably a pl a closer to the place of origin. Think of uh, you know the American expansion the, the, and the, say the Russian expansion, right? They it's very recent phenomena in, in the last couple hundred years. And so that's why you have this whole continental wide piece of North America that's all speaking English, American English, right? And you also have this huge expanse of land stretching from Moscow to Vladivostok on the northern Eurasian continent that's Russian speaking. This is a sign. I'm sorry? You mean Haisen Y? Okay, okay. So, yes. Yeah, Haisen Y is a Chinese name for Vladivostok. Before Vladivostok become Vladivostok, which means the Lord over the East. And and so this, that the, the reason the whole of Russia, right, speaks Russian and whole of United States speak English is because it's a sign of very recent expansion. And same thing with uh, you know the, the Australian language expansion is that uh, you know they discover the most diverse uh, place of is actually Taiwan. It contains many many uh, of these Australian family. So we know that you know, Taiwan has been settled a long long time. Uh, but that doesn't um, again. This is just based on linguistic evidence. But, you know, Taiwan actually had been settled way, obviously, way before the Australian expansion. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm reading your notes here um, that the earliest inhabitants of Taiwan are, are as early as over 10,000 years ago. Yeah. And I'm assuming that they will be arriving from the Chinese mainland. Yeah. Because... Because, oh, oh, yeah, here, here you go. You've you seen your notes, actually. <laughs> there used to be a land bridge between Taiwan and the Asian continent. And actually, in China, in southern China, uh, particularly the area around the Yang lower Yangtze Delta, that's an area where rice cultivation was de developed uh, about 9,000 years ago. Right, and then the rice farmers, because rice is super productive, then rice farmers start to push out of the lower Yangtze Delta, spread all across. And we know, you know, the Australian people, 
you know, both the Taiwan Aborigines and people in, say, Indonesia and the Philippines, they're, they're rice farmers, right? So, so the, the initial rice farmers, they, they brought their agriculture, uh, rice agriculture throughout, you know, Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, some, some of them pushed as far as Hawaii, New Zealand, and Mad- Madagascar. Uh, uh, so this, this is like the history of the prehistorical Taiwan, the, 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 the time that before Taiwan even appear on written records, because we don't have uh, written records from times of 10,000, 9,000 years ago. All we have are archaeological evidence. But we, the Taiwan then start to appear in the Chinese records as, uh, you know, China as one of the first place in the world that have very complete record keeping. Um, and this was dated to uh, the Three Kingdoms period. Uh, you know, like many of you gamers would know, uh, you know, Dynasty Warriors <laughs> or the, the Total War Three Kingdoms that just came out last year. So so the, in the very important Three Kingdoms period, uh, that's when Taiwan, possibly Taiwan, appear in the Chinese records. Uh, I mean, we say possibly Taiwan because um, what appeared in the Chinese record is, is that the, the ruler of Kingdom of Wu, Sun Quan, he sent um, basically expedition to um, to a large island, uh, right? To to large island, uh, which they believe now many historians believe that island is referring to taiwan um but it was not a it was not a permanent settlement because it's more of a like slave raiding mission because during three kingdoms period uh, there was a large the, the, the han, han dynasty at its height at its peak had 65 million people. But as a result of plague and civil war during Three Kingdoms period, you know, the Kingdom of Wu, which covered much of southern China, they have less than uh, like five, four million people. And so so, so Sun Quan really needed people to staff his his kingdom. And, and he would send out these expeditions to round up people to bring back and one of the expedition went to like a, a large island to uh, to southeast. So people believe um, people, many historians today believe that this is referring to the island of Taiwan. Again, they didn't, you know, they didn't come to Taiwan to settle. They they were more interested to bring people back. Um, and then 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 this, uh, the second record of the the Chinese contact with Taiwan was during much later during uh, after the unification in the Sui dynasty. Uh, uh, but there's some c- controversy about that because the, the island was referred to as Liuqiu, right? So the emperor, uh, emperor Yang of Sui sent, sent uh, actually, I like how you describe it. Why don't you cover this part since this is your, your notes right here? Okay, yeah. So um, basically, he sent his boys to Taiwan to capture a few hundred prisoners of war um, back, to, back to China. And um, from this, we can see that there was the intention to incorporate, um, incorporate Taiwan into the imperial map. But there wasn't the intention of you know, establish, establishing actual rule over the island. So the Sui troops basically did a drive-by shooting on Taiwan and left. 
Yeah, and again, there's uh, still a little bit controversy, uh, mostly among historians, on whether the Liuqiu is referring to Taiwan or the actual uh, uh, Liuqiu, Neutron Island, which is Ryukyu Islands, or what most Americans would know as Okinawa. Because, uh, you know, in, in, in China, the Liuqiu Island, or aka the Japanese pronunciation is Ryukyu, um, the, the Okinawa island chain has had long historical contact with, uh, uh, with the Chinese mainland. And um, even though Taiwan is a lot closer to the mainland, but because of the curious uh, effect of the ocean current and the wind, because, you know, monsoon wind is very important in Asian tr trade and it kind of blows uh, like like uh, either northeast or southeast direction. So it's a lot easier to ride the ocean current and the wind from, say, f coast of southeast China, say, from Fujian or, or Zhejiang to, to Okinawa, to Ryukyu Islands and then Taiwan, right? And, and the fact that the, 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 they refer to the island as Liuqiu, which was actually the name of, you know, ancient Okinawa. Different characters, um, though. Yeah, but come on, the, 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 that that's a transcription, right? Yeah, Liuqiu yeah. is it's not a, a Chinese name, so it's it's mm -hmm. a it's a transcription of a native name, Liuqiu. Yeah. So so much with Taiwan actually too. Yes, yes, we we will talk about that when yeah. we talk about the Taiwan's modern history. Um, so so there are some people who, based on ocean current, believe that they actually ended up in in Okinawa rather than Taiwan. Um, and but by by Song Dynasty, we we Taiwan is definitely on the map because by no, Song no, Dynasty only um only Peng only Penghu Penghu yeah that's what I mean because the Song Dynasty have is there, there's a set of islands right in the middle of Taiwan Strait halfway between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan called the Penghu Islands. So the Song Dynasty and the uh, following. Uh, after Mongol conquest, the Yuan Dynasty have established administrative units on Penghu Island. So there's settlement, the, you know, of Chinese fishermen on Penghu Island. So they're already halfway to Taiwan, but they're not quite to Taiwan yet. They're, they're, but they start to be aware of that large island on the other side of the the, the Taiwan Strait. This is a very important detail, um, because we're gonna get into um the um the. Dutch East Indies Company and the other, um, you know, the European colonists. And this is a very important detail. Just keep that in mind. There were people on these islands in the middle of the Taiwan Strait. And there's yes. also the Dutch East Indies com Company in Indonesia. So Yes. Yes. So we're still at the Mongol conquest. So I'm yeah, just going yeah. to go through the notes. So the Yuan Dynasty navigator Wang Dayuan went to Taiwan and noted that people were plentiful and lived long. Men and women both wore cotton, cotton clothing. That might be a translation error, um, because bu yi, it's like uh, English. It would sound weird just saying like cotton clothes, like or cloth clothes, but it mm -hmm. was like clothes made of fabric. So I, I, I don't, I didn't know how to translate that. Yeah, I mean that he might be cotton because you know Taiwan. Yeah, was part of this maritime trade network that spans Southeast Asia, and we know during colonial times. 
you know, the Indian cotton was actually highly valued in place in Southeast Asia, including Taiwan, because, you know, like the, 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 the kind of the cotton fabric kind of absorb, help absorb sweat, you know, in, in the hot mm-hmm. climate that, that, that's so, so I, I mean, it might, it might be cotton. I mean, it's t- certainly possible because the, the trade, the Indian ocean basin trade network that, that kind of spanned the South South China Sea. Uh, I mean, that has existed for a thousands of years, for a thousand years at least, oh. and and that would definitely cover the Mongol time uh, that we're talking about. And and the the Wang Dayuan also noted there were tens of thousands of goats, uh, and they grew flax and mung beans. So so these. The people in Taiwan, they're agriculturists. The, the Aboriginal people in Taiwan, they were, you know, the, the, the cultures are, they grew, they grew rice, they grew uh, different crops, right? And then, um, again, as we mentioned before, both Song and Yuan Dynasty, they established an administrative uh, unit over Penghu Islands, but there's no attempt to extend their rule over Taiwan yet. You know, Taiwan still kind of kind of beyond the pale of imperial reach. Um, this will start to change a little bit during the Ming Dynasty. Um, so mean so this this is interesting because getting back to the name. Right, because because uh, during Ming Dynasty, Ryukyu Islands, or really we should use a, the, the native Ryukyu uh, language, the, the Liuquan Islands, right? In Chinese, they're called uh, in or in Ming Dynasty texts, they're called Da Liuqiu Guo, which is a greater uh, Ryukyu Kingdom or the greater Liuqiu Kingdom. Whereas the Taiwan is referred as to the Xiao Liu Chou Guo, um, kind of counterintuitive because Taiwan is much much bigger <laughs> in land mass than Okinawa. Maybe not uh, popularity. That might be why one is big and one is small. Like you know. That's true. That's true because yeah. uh, like, during Ming Dynasty, Wayne, but he's bigger than me. Yes, yes, because uh, because during Ming Dynasty. Um, Ryukyu Islands, uh, you know, center in Okinawa, they finally come uh, to be united under one unified kingdom. And the, the Ryukyu Kingdom, uh, you know, they they send envoys to the Ming Imperial Court asked to be tributary of China uh, because that allows Ryukyu Kingdom to be part of the Chinese tributary system, which means Ryukyu Kingdom can send ships to trade freely on Chinese mainland as a, as a main tributary. And, and because of that, Ryukyu Kingdom became a, a trade hub in the marine time uh, trade networks of Southeast Asia, because it's kind of set in halfway between uh, Japan, Korea, China, and Southeast Asia. Right, and it's just a little bit north of Taiwan. So Taiwan is part of that network also, but Ryukyu Kingdom was was a more important trade hub. Mm-hmm. And but but Ming Dynasty is also the time when uh, oh, you also in your notes it says that Taiwan was considered to be fifteen um, to fifteen countries that that not to be conquered. Right, so so bu, that that's your translation of Bu uh, Right, so yeah. so the Ming Dynasty founding Emperor Zhu Yuanzang, 
he kind after he unified he after he uh, throughout the Mongol rule, he established um, these tributary states surrounding the imperial China. They are consider you know the 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 good tributary states so you know china will not in turn china will not invade or occupy them so so among this is uh the real q kingdom but taiwan uh interestingly was considered a kingdom and always considered one of these lands that that will not to be conquered and and so again it kind of implies that Taiwan was kind of beyond, just beyond the imperial pale. And, and but, um, oh, oh, actually, you have more in your notes. It says, uh, Zhu Yuanzhang basically said, Taiwan was a lawless land that posed no threat to China, and therefore there's no need to conquer it, which is true, which is true, because uh, at the time for uh, people on the mainland, Taiwan is more uh, a place for like sailors and fishermen to stop by and getting resupplies uh, and for some trade with the mainland going on, you know, because Taiwan at the time, um, you know, the political development of Taiwan uh, come even compared to Okinawa, it did not have, uh, it has some tribal confederate confederacies, but it didn't even have like kind of the more complex uh, organization like like Oki, Ryokyung Kingdom on Okinawa, and um, that's that might be also why it's called Xiao Liu Chou right? The little the little kingdom of Liu Chou. Um, yeah. And an- another thing I want to mention is um, notice how he said that um, Taiwan uh, Taiwan posed posed no threat to China, therefore there was no need to go conquer it. That's the thing about um Chinese territorial expansion, which is why it's mostly by land, and it's not like um the European um colonists who went all over the world is um as long as a place a place was only considered people they only expanded to places where that posed a threat for example um like with tibet it was it's not simply the case of um just chinese going in and um conquering it and making it a part of china but the fact that there were so many interactions over a long period of time and a mutual like mutual cases of um invasions so I mean, with, yeah, that is a, it's a very interesting case, and I will have a devote devote some future episode into mm-hmm. it because originally Tibet existed; uh, it has its own empire. You know, Tibetan Empire was the rival and the equal of the Tang Empire, yeah, and and, and the, from the treaty it signed between Tang and Tibet, it's clear that they were they were co-equals, and then that started to change after the collapse of the Tibetan Empire. After, especially after the Mongols basically came in and, and, and conquered everything. And the, the Tibetan religious authorities, the Tibetan lamas went to the, the, the Mongol Khan and basically submitted. Mm-hmm. So that's when, for the first time, Tibet was kind of brought into one administrative unit, um, you know, by a government that's based in China. Okay, yeah, I just covered but this and, is an and, important and, detail because Taiwan, they didn't consider um, really incorporating Taiwan until it became evident that because of Taiwan's um, importance in trade, it would eventually either be conquered by the Europeans or by the Japanese. And those people would pose a threat to China. Well, I think uh, so. Taiwan is kind of just... 
Because Ming Dynasty, for most of its part, it has its hands full, and especially mm-hmm. towards the end, the end of Ming Dynasty, there's a there's a really very serious problem of Japanese piracy uh, that was stem in fact uh, a fact from the the fact that the, the Japan at the time was was a lawless uh, was entering into a very chaotic this so called the Japanese Warring States period. So there was left no no central authority in Japan, and and the different factions, you know, they try to maximize their game however they can, including engaging in international piracy, <laughs> and and the, the the Japanese piracy became a huge problem for Ming Dynasty because the, the entire because uh, Ming Dynasty has been in peace for hundreds of years and there's no coastal defense, and suddenly all these. Uh, Ronins, which are basically masterless samurai, became employed by these, uh, you know, pirates. Uh, some of them Chinese pirates, actually. And they then they, kill. yes, yes, they start attacking the Chinese coast up and down from, you know, any from, from Beijing all the way down to Hainan Islands, and and the, the Japanese piracy actually affected the whole coast of, uh, uh, of not just China but also Southeast Asia and and you know the main response to that was stopping the trade with Japan uh, you know because Japan was really never part of official tributary uh, system and the fact that the, the Japanese pirates were causing so many problems so the main officials just outright banned the trade with Japan but that creates actually a more incentive for piracy because you know the, the trade with japan was actually a very crucial source of income for a lot of the coastal merchants uh you know especially merchants from fujian uh <laughs> and and uh, so a lot of the, uh, the 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 coastal merchants actually took to piracy themselves and they, they will hire the the, the ronin, so those masterless uh, Japanese samurais, you know, who are very good at swords. They're basically literally swords for hire. And 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 by the late Ming Dynasty, it was estimated that the so-called Japanese pirates actually it's seventy percent Chinese. <laughs> and and in fact, the 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 the, the, the biggest um, so-called Woko or the the, the biggest Japanese pirate, the head of the Japanese pirate organization is a Fujian merchant. Uh, he, he's a Fujian or Zhejiang, that, that same, that area, Wangzi, uh, you know, and, and, and these people will play this. Uh, the reason I start talking about the pirates uh, is because, yeah, pirates are fun, but to be, they will actually play a huge role in the political development of Taiwan itself. And and one of the uh, and just during this time, these pirates, this uh, Chinese uh, Chinese slash Japanese pirates, will make Taiwan their base uh, because Taiwan is kind of outside, just outside the imperial reach, yet close enough to to be used as a platform for trade and piracy on mainland China. And and these uh, you know, so there's the 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 the, the Chinese pi- merchant pirates families. From Fujian, Zhejiang, etc., they also had close tie with, you know, the Japanese da- daimyos, basically these Japanese warlords 
who also depending on the trade because at the time you know Chinese economy was growing so large and so vast um, and, and China being the first one of the first country in the world to print paper money and the government just start print, printing paper money like crazy and it caused hyperinflation and eventually the currency crashed and the whole economy went back to metal currency which in China was bimetal, was silver and gold but China, while produce is a major gold-producing country, it does not produce enough silver. And it's also around this time, you know, the, about 15th, uh, 16th century, a silver mine was discovered in Japan. So that created a huge incentive to, to trade because there's a hu huge need for silver in China itself to use as currency. And then there's, you know, the, the Japan needed to trade for tea, silk, uh, porcelain, all the all the luxury goods is a desire from China. So there was an active trade of in Japanese silver for Chinese uh, manufactured goods, and it's carried because of the ban, uh, because of the imperial ban on trade with Japan. Uh, you know, one to to skirt around the ban. You know, that's one reason Okinawa uh, or Kingdom of Ryukyu become a trade hub because Kingdom of Ryukyu is a, a Chinese vassal. So it's allowed to trade with China. <laughs> it, was, it also can trade with Japan because, you know, one of the Japanese daimyo, they they conquered, they took the opportunity to conquer Okinawa, uh, Ryokyo Kingdom, but they, they made sure to disguise the fact from the Chinese imperial envoy. So the trade with Japan can go on through the kingdom of Ryokyo. And in the other part, just south of Okinawa is Taiwan, which around this time became a big pirate base. And one of the famous pirate at the time was called the Captain China. <laughs> he was known to the Europeans as Captain China. I think his last surname is Lee. And he filled a huge fleet of junks that kind of dominated the, the waters in the Taiwan Strait. And then he was succeeded by one of his protege, Zhen Zilong. Um, and Zhen Zilong, you know, is one of the typical, kind of the typical um, Fujianese people who, who took to, to the sea for profit. And he landed in Japan, you know, married a Japanese woman, um, have, a, have a song by her, have a couple of songs by her. And you know, one of one of the song, one, his oldest song uh, by this Japanese woman will play a pivotal role in the Taiwan's history going forward. So, uh, just trying to wrap up this real quick, even though this is fascinating, but we really get need to get to a more modern period. So, Zhen uh, Zilong, because he was the head of the, basically he inherited this huge. Uh, pirate empire off the coast of southeast china and the Ming dynasty eventually decided you know screw it we can't beat you but we'll just pay you off we actually will recruit you into our court as one of our court officials and then we give basically give you a license to hunt down other pirates which suited him just fine which just means he gained a trade monopoly so Zhen Zilong, then he took um this is the Ming Dynasty yeah. version of reform and opening up. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of, sort of. Uh, he uh, so Zhen Zilong, you know, got now he got the imperial 
uh, license uh, uh, to be like the the official pirate, basically. And then he he defeated his rivals, gained a trade monopoly. He became super powerful. He had a um, uh, he's a very complex character because he he well traveled. You know, he he in his youth he traveled to Macau, then uh, a Portuguese Portuguese colony because you know Europeans are starting to show up around uh, the Ming Dynasty. Late Ming Dynasty. That's when the span, the, the so-called Age of Great Discovery, right? The the, the Portuguese finally rounded the uh, the Cape of Good Good Hope in Africa, and they made it into the Indian Ocean and and starting to dominate the trade in the Indian Ocean Basin. And then the Spanish, you know, they quote unquote discover Americas, and they also discover huge silver mines in Bolivia, Peru. Chile, Mexico, and silver, as I mentioned, was hugely valuable in China. So the so the Spanish moving to Manila, uh, establish a base there, and use the American silver to trade for for Chinese goods with these uh, Chinese merchants slash pirates, and and then the Dutch moved in. Right, the Dutch follow suit. They defeated the Portuguese. They, they were able to grab. Uh, the the so-called Dutch Dutch East Indies, which is today's present-day Indonesia, they established their base on Java Island uh, in what they call Batavia, which would become Jakarta today. And and so now you, we have all these Europeans crawling around in the Asian Asian waters, and the Portuguese they um, they tried to uh, you know basically stormed their way into China. They, they fought a couple of Navy battles against uh, the Ming Dynasty Navy. And they were actually being defeated. And there were in the twi- two naval battles, the Portuguese were defeated. And so in the end, they resort to kind of corruption. <laughs> they, they bribed the local officials, uh, essentially, to allow them to stay in Macau. It's supposed to be a lease, uh, uh, like they, they for paying a certain amount of uh, rent annually, they get to set up shop on Macau. And, and Macau became kind of a center of trade for the, for the European traders that wanted to trade with China, especially engage the triangle trade between China and Japan, because as I mentioned before, the, Jap- the, the trade, direct trade with Japan was completely banned by Ming Dynasty imperial government, but the Portuguese they're they're able to trade in China from their foothold in Macau, and they're also got a um, foothold in Japan. They're allowed to trade in Japan. So, so in the end, you know, rather than bringing goods from Europe to China or Chinese goods to Europe, the 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 trade that sustained the Portuguese in Asia was actually acting as middleman between China and Japan because only Portuguese, uh, you know, they, they use their middleman status and the, the trade volume between China and Japan was so huge that, you know, the, the most profitable trade for the Europeans at the time was a kind of triangle trade between, between China, Japan, that's, that's been kind of brokeraged by, by the Portuguese. And then the Dutch, they wanted the in on the, on the, on the same, uh, you know, very, very profitable, profitable trade from their, their um, base in Jakarta. You know, they, 
they kind of on the periphery of the Chinese empire, but they're not allowed direct access. So, so this is where Taiwan is going to play a huge important role because Taiwan is kind of this island that's just kind of outside of the imperial reach, uh, but yet just close enough to the to the Chinese mainland that could potentially acting as a, a springboard into China itself. And then, uh, you know, the Dutch actually had a couple run-in with Zhen Zilong because Zhen Zilong, as the admiral slash pirates uh, commissioned by Ming Imperial Corps, he had a trade monopoly, right? He, he is not about to let Dutch to elbow in into his business empire. And... And then the Dutch um, actually, uh, so, so Zhen Zilong is interesting because he, uh, he, in his youth, he spent in Macau in the, the Portuguese colony where he, he learned some Portuguese. He is able to communicate with these, with these uh, Europeans. And he, apparently he also was baptized. He has a Christian name. And, and also from Macau, he gathered around himself uh, a, 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 a of personal bodyguards of former African slaves, um, because these these black Africans they have no local loyalties, they have no local ties, so they they own owe their allegiance only to himself. So these are the people he feel he could trust, and so his close bodyguards are these like these uh, these uh, uh, Catholic Africans. And and then you know he has a Japanese wife. He has he is operating base out of out of Japan and also out of Taiwan. But by the time um, the the Europe Dutch start showing up, he already uh, most of his operation already moved back to Chinese mainland because he has gained the uh, kind of the favor of the imperial court. And then then him and Dutch uh, was gonna have a showdown because. Um, Dutch start to show up, um, basically try to pillage, uh, raid and pillage the, the, the coastal Chinese towns. And the, the Min court commissioned Zhen Zilong to repel the Dutch. So he started to build this uh, uh, a European-style warships on the coast of China in Fujian. Because, uh, you know, at the time, Europeans had couple advantages, military advantages over the Chinese um, and other East Asian people. That's that what allowed them to construct this far-flung empire is their uh, fortress, their, their fortress built, they, they, they have very good firearms because, uh, you know, after gunpowder was passed into Europe, for hundreds of years, you know, Europe was in constant state of war. And so the Europeans got pretty good at, at, at fighting, at war fighting. So they got pretty good firearms. They also have um, uh, they also have very good sailing ships um, because just for the for the fact of geography um, in in East Asia, the very important for the trade is a monsoon, and the monsoon wind blows you know one direction half of the year and then reverse direction the second half of the year. So most of the A Asian ships were built to carry on this monsoon trade. Whereas uh, in in North Atlantic, the weather is a lot rougher 
and you know the win is a lot more unpredictable. So people like the Dutch, um, Portuguese, they had to build like really sturdy ships that could sail against the wind. So the Europeans had better sailing technology because their their, their ships are bigger, more uh, they, their ship hold more guns and their ships could sail their their rig their special rigs allowed them to sail against the wind and that's what the, the the chinese and other asian people were about to find out is when they engage the europeans navies militarily on the high seas you know they have problems because even when they managed to defeat the Europeans, they couldn't catch them because the, the, the Europeans could just sail against the wind and get away. Whereas the, the Asian ships, there are their sail is designed to maximize against maximize to, to maximize to catch the wind, right? Catch the trade wind to, to go to the next port. But so, but they're not very good going against the wind. And and uh, and the third military advantage the Europeans have is the Italian style Renaissance fortress. Um, so so the Europeans learned to build this uh, uh, this Renaissance fortress that have they have this bastion sticking out so that way there's no dead spots on the wall on the city wall. You know they can shoot basically at all different angles. And that allowed them to construct a series of forts in different like spots of Asia. So if you look at Portuguese Empire or Dutch Empire, initially they only they're just literally outposts, you know, like center around a fortress. And and because these fortresses are so well built, and because they have no no dead spots, uh, you know, from crossfire, like it's very hard to take them. So these fortresses plus their sailing ships allow them to construct this far-flung empire all across Africa and Asia. And this will also play a role in Taiwan. So, so this brings us to Zheng uh, Zilong building. So he's trying to replicate the European success by building the European sailing ship. And apparently he did a very good job because when the Dutch came to, came to pay him a visit, they, were, they marveled at the... The, the, the workmanship that, uh, you know, they said, that, you know, the ship he built, you know, match anything that was built in, in Netherlands. But Zhen Zilong didn't get to launch these ships because, you know, the Dutch launched a surprise attack just when his ship was about to be finished. And, and Dutch were able to burn all his ships right on the beach. And, you know, Zhen Zilong had to resort to um, kind of a, a traditional Chinese um, Navy Navy battle uh, tech tactic, which is he waited for the Dutch uh, ship to uh, cast um, uh, to 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 set in in a harbor, and then at night he sent fire ships, you know, small ships loaded with explosives and gunpowders, and used the wind to send this fire ship into the into the Dutch fleet. And he blocked the, 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 the entrance of the harbor so they couldn't escape. So this was a major defeat for the Dutch and revenge for, for his own losses. And, and because of this, you know, Dutch pretty much gave up on, um, on Dutch pretty much gave up trying to set up an outpost on the Chinese mainland. And also they, this, uh, this, you know, Dutch, 
also try to colonize Penhu Islands, which is what we talk about. This set group of islands is halfway between Taiwan and uh, Chinese mainland. You know, but Penhu Islands is actually part of the imperial territory because it's it's part officially part of the the Ming County. So Zheng Zilong, by his great victory against Dutch, basically kicked the Dutch out of the southeastern Chinese coast. Um, at this point, they enter into a peace negotiation. You know, because they they you know they still want to both sides still want to carry on business trade. So Zheng Zilong says, you know, as long as you clear cut off the Chinese coast, including Penghu Islands, because those are my responsibilities, I have to answer to the Ming Imperial Court. Uh, guess what? There's this big island across the water, you know, and and that that's where I used to, you know, <laughs> I use use as a base for my my old days piracy activities. You can't have that. Uh, so, so at that, Dutch took that as like an official endorsement of them uh, to take over Taiwan, and then this begins uh, um, kind of the, the 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 Dutch colonization of Taiwan. And then around the same time, the Spanish try to expand their trade network from Manila because from Manila they have to depend on the Chinese pirates slash merchants to bring the Chinese goods to Manila to trade for silver. They wanted to get closer to the action. So they also pushed to Taiwan. The Spanish established a series of forts in the northern part of Taiwan, around um, area around Taipei today, kind of just around Taipei. Whereas the Dutch, they set up base in southern Taiwan, uh, around Tainan, uh, and and they built the, the, the couple fortress over there. And then the Dutch and the Spanish, they, they of course, they have a, had a showdown over Taiwan. Uh, and Dutch being the rising power, European power that gave the Spanish a sound beating. And, and then Dutch became kind of the undisputed colonial power over Taiwan. And, and originally, uh, you know, when Dutch came to Taiwan, it, the there are already people there, of course, you know, like so original people, originally people who have been living there for tens of thousands of years. And they're about also about 2000, according to the Dutch records, Dutch East Indy Company records, there are about 2000 Chinese traders slash merchants who are kind of also have their like sacred pirate bases at various uh, points of the island that's also on the island and also trading with the natives and and uh, yeah and that's how the Dutch colonial period began the full interview has been released to my patreon subscribers to subscribe search in google the silk and steel podcast the patreon link should be the second one from the top or you can go to patreon.com in the search box, type in silk. The silk and steel podcast should be the first one in the result. I put in a lot of time and effort to put together this podcast, and I do ask you for your support. For $5 a month, you will receive premium patron-only episodes like this that details culture, politics, history of China, its surrounding region, and China's relationship with the world. You will also receive 
pre-released regular episodes before they have been released to the general public, as well as newsletters detailing everything China-related topics. I hope you enjoy the show, and I hope you subscribe. Thank you for listening.